Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet. Uh, another week's gone by, but we still have to have these interviews where we get people from the land telling their story. And a person who I've seen in a suit and in gumboots is Jason Herrick. Now, he's been nationally profiled, actually, with uh, his output on the state of the dairy industry and environmentalism in Southland, and also talks about um, mental illness inside the farm gate. So, Jason, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. What what What's motivated you to become a dairy farmer and a bit of your background? Yeah, thank you very much, Don. Um, uh, what motivated me to become a dairy farmer? Um, I was actually, uh, as a young fellow, I grew up in Lumsden, Northern Southland, and uh, my father was a mechanic and owned the local uh, garage there. And uh, all of my friends and my grandfather and uncle were far sheep farmers, so I had a huge interest in farming at that time and um, spent most weekends and, and school holidays with uh, with my uncle and friends on farm. And when I decided to leave school, uh, I went and done a course through Telford. Um, and in the Telford course, it actually put us across all, all entities within farming. Um, and out of that, I actually uh, decided I enjoyed dairying a whole lot more. Um, so I quite enjoyed working with the cows and and uh, then it started from there pretty much. And I joined the Federated Farmers Cadet uh, course uh, scheme uh, way back in the in the mid nineties, and uh, when that was up and running, and um, I really uh, hit the ground running from there. Um, moved from Southland to Canterbury, and uh, spent uh, a good old twenty two years in Canterbury uh, dairy farming up there, um, before moving back south to take up an opportunity on a farm that I'm currently still on down here. So. Um, I've got a uh, family of four kids and a, and a beautiful wife, um, and I actually have a, a new grandchild now. So um, life's looking pretty good uh, on that front. Well done. Isn't it interesting uh, how you can talk about your story uh, so eloquently? I mean, there's lots more to it, I know, but I, I've observed your your progress through the uh, farming um, sort of advocacy groups over time, and I find you a very able um frontman for for farming and you've had to face some pretty big hurdles in recent years with regard to the attack on farming uh from the regulator and environmentalism you know, how's how's that played out for you and and yeah what what effect does it have on you really yeah so right right through the years like um i was a class myself as a southern man right pretty hard as nails and and uh, call a spade a spade and uh, over the years, uh, throughout farming, um, the landscape's changed quite a bit, both in political realms and uh, actually on the land itself. And uh, I've enjoyed farming. I love farming for many, many years. And, and over time, the public perception of farming started to uh, sort of get to me a bit the way it was portrayed in the, in the, um, in the media and uh, in the public eye. Uh, and it did weigh heavily on me. And, you know, I would uh, kick myself in the in the ass and just say, hey, you know, you got to get on with this, um, get on with what you do love doing and, and so on. And, and you know, over time um, that built to, to a point where um, it put me into a uh, depression um, and I had a mental breakdown. Um, it got to the point where I was very suicidal um, and, you know, life wasn't looking so great. 
Um, and that was all due to the perception, and that happened uh, all come to a head in uh, 2018 in a very wet uh, autumn, winter and spring. Um, and I had a, a very, very um, uh, tough evening one night and the look the next morning wasn't that flash, right? And that's where the public perception comes into it. And uh, the day went pretty much downhill from there. And uh, ever since then, um, uh, since I've come out the other side, uh, I've managed to um, get a grip on myself. I've managed to uh, find out what makes me tick. Um, and I've got my passion for farming back um, more on an advocacy level. Why? Because I, because of what's happened to farming over the years and the, and the constant attack that we now have um, on farming itself and, um, and the misperception of it that's out there, right? Um, so after uh, I um, spent six months after my mental breakdown um, repairing, so to speak, um, talking to the right people, um, getting myself back on track, um, I uh, come across some activism in 2019 right out in front of my farm. And unfortunately for them, they chose the wrong farmer to do it on. Um, and they were out there trying to take photos of my cows, 7 o'clock at night, I don't know, trying to take photos of because it, it was dark. And uh, that was, you know, so we had a bit of a heated uh, confrontation, um, Jeff Reed and, uh, and Matt Coffey and co., um, and uh, it led from then on, uh, we got together with a group of other farmers and formed a group called Ag Proud um, and set off on a mission around the country, um, you know, and that mission was to promote positive farm practices because there was a lot of good stuff going on within farming, right? And uh, we all know this, um, but it wasn't getting out in the public eye. Only the negative stuff was was actually getting portrayed, and and that's what put me into my um, into my uh um, mental breakdown and uh, I wasn't going to have a bar of it anymore so I reached out and uh, put my story out there um, exactly what happened to me over the years and the, the whole reason for doing that was not only um, to put that out there but was to help people right recognize because when you're in that mental state of mind and you're in that frame of mind um, you think you're the only one you think you're the only one in that space that's getting attacked um, if the whole world's thinking of you like that. And I just wanted to put it out there that when you're in that frame of mind, you're not the only one and let people know. And my mission was to help one person. If I could just help one person, um, we could, you know, um, save one life, so to speak, um, and, and move it forward from there. Um, and then um, coming out of that, I decided to get into Federated Farmers. Why? Because I've seen what um, Jeffrey Young and Bernadette Hunt were doing. Um, and standing up against this poor regulation, which was leading to poor perception, um, which was putting farmers, you know, under more pressure. Um, and I thought to myself, well, maybe if I can help one person through Ag Proud, I could help multiple people through Federated Farmers. So that's where it sort of stemmed from why I got into advocacy. And um, and I I still deal with depression on a daily basis, don't get me wrong, and I have high levels of anxiety, but I know what my coping mechanisms are now. And uh, I'm on a, on a health journey uh, myself where um, I'm getting very fit and healthy in the top two inches as well as the, as well as the body, I'm changing my whole perception on, uh, on my world. Um, and, you know, it's helping me in the advocacy space to see things a lot clearer um, for what it is. Um, and I, I'm a research person. I love research, and I do a lot of research and around uh, things I don't know um, to get a better grasp and a better uh, handle on things, especially in the political realms, right? So I speak to a lot of politicians and get a gauge on what's going on in the political sense, and uh, I do 
believe in, 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 in myself that I do have a real good handle on the way politics works now, um, which can help me in the advocacy space and stand up for farmers even better. So, um, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to the future and, and what more I can provide and, and help the farming sector out on. Brilliant. Thank you, Jason. Now, I must say, listeners, I recently met Jason, though I followed you and your work for a while. And this was at Tuatapri at a mental health awareness event uh, where you spoke very eloquently, as did Craig Higgins. And mental health is not something spoken about, certainly not by blokes, certainly not by men who are, I, I mean, I can vouch for my husband. To get him to talk is uh, probably far tougher than uh, anything else I can think of if things get hard. But you guys spoke very honestly, very forthrightly that day. And I, for one, I'm extremely grateful seeing what's happening in the rural space. But the last three years, Jason, and I will ask about this because I know you've not, as you told me before the interview, nothing's off the table and you call things out as they are. The last three years have not been easy on us, anyone, have they, be it rural or be it townies? Absolutely not. And um, the last three years have been an absolute debacle in my mind from the top down. Um, the the Politicians made an absolute hash of the last three years and didn't take into regard um, people on the ground. Now, one thing I do uh, lobby with politicians all the time, and I have this, this discussion uh, particularly with our local ones, is when politicians make a decision on something, I would like them to put at the forefront um, the human state of welfare and the outcomes of it. The what ifs, start thinking about the what ifs. I know common sense is no longer part of our DNA because health and safety took that away. Um, you know, we're not allowed to think for ourselves anymore, but when they start making these decisions at a top level, we need to need to realize and understand what the implications will be from the ground. And the, the only way to do that is reach out to the people on the ground and find out what makes them tick. And, you know, if this was put in front of you guys, how would you guys, you know, deal with this? You know, and the whole COVID situation, in my mind, and the way the government dealt with it um, was a test on the human race as far as I'm concerned. Um, where I see that coming from is I think it was a test to see who would conform and who would follow instruction. And, you know, I don't believe that the, the numbers that the government tell us um, are actually the true factual numbers um, because of the uh, um, mitigations they put around or the criteria they put around those numbers. Um, you know, when they say to everybody, hey, you know, we had over 90% of people got the vaccine in this country, um, and, and when you actually dive into it, it was um, eligible people, and that word, key word was eligible. Now, what did eligible mean? When I'd done my research and I did a little more, more digging on it, Eligible come from whoever had visited a hospital and a doctor within the previous two years to COVID turning up. Yeah. That was the people that they took their statistics on. So 90% of the people that have visited a doctor or hospital had got the vaccine. Didn't take out to, into account anyone else who hadn't been to a doctor or a hospital. So, you know, that's where they got their numbers from. And that just that's just wrong. And they were just trying to do it out of full, con you know, to gain full control. Um, and see who would conform, right? And I uh, I use that analogy a lot in the farming sector um, over the years, or what's the, in the changing landscape in the farming sector from individual farm owners to corporatisation. Um, governments love corporates, right? They love corporates. Yeah. Why? Because they can control corporates. And um, that, to me, that's the way that it feels that we're going at the moment. And the last three, three years was a testament to that. Let's try and put the pressure on as many people as we can to get them to conform. If they don't conform, we need to come up with a new plan. Um, 
you know, it just woke my my and opened my eyes up to completely what's been happening in the in the rural sector. They love corporatisation in the farming sector because corporates can be controlled and they can do what they want. Completely. And listening to you speak, it's very reminiscent of when we had Bernadette Hunt here. She spoke about the same thing. She says the very community I, you know, worked so hard for to get the kids hub and everything on. Suddenly I was a pariah among those and going to town was an ordeal. And yeah, that that is certainly something I'll never forget. I, for one, because of my stance, was unable to travel for three years. I had, yeah, lost some people who were, you know, within family and one could, just couldn't go. But moving on, they now seem to have decided that we are going to use the same tactics where climate is concerned, the very same that they used over COVID, don't they? Yes, they are. And uh, I'm like, again, I, I'm a research person. I love doing my research. And um, nothing makes sense what they're coming up with, right? Um, I'm not a climate change denier because um, climate change is always happening, right? It's changing all the time. Mm. And um, what we what we throw, throw at it, um, I'm not sure whether it alters it or not. Um, I'm a sceptic. And um, they're basing a lot of their uh, findings and a lot of their facts on models and, and, and predictions um, on what? Science is not absolute. Science is, is, is scepticism, you know, and... For them to make policy on science is wrong because science is not absolute. Absolute is fact. Science is not fact. It can be argued on on both sides of the fence. So, you know, for them to put things in place and policy in place and taxes in place um, on on science, which is not, you know, it's not absolute, is is just absolutely ridiculous to me. And it's just money grabbing. And yeah. It's it's making the population conform to what they want. Well, if you've read a, an IPCC report, uh, even just the um, AR metrics, uh, sorry, AR four, four, five, or six metrics report, it would do your head in. Um, there isn't. It's all. It, while while obviously very intelligent people have put papers up by the hundreds. How you get anything more than subjectivity out of it, um, as opposed to people trying to make rigorous political policy out of it, uh, seems uh, odd to me. I don't see how it works. And of course, it doesn't work. And that's why we're all up in arms about it, because clearly, if it was robust and right, there wouldn't be any dilemma, would you? You'd know you're doing the right thing. So uh, you use the word fact. I think um, more like fable is what uh, what we're faced with here. So, But isn't that interesting, Jason, just listening to you? Farmers herd sheep, herd uh, cattle, um, herd goats. You know, we herd stuff. But the humankind got herded the most of anybody in the last three years. And it was so damned easy. And I still have friends that I um, liaise with, have drinks with, who don't see it. So how how are we going to change that? How are we going to get people to be far more sceptical than compliant? Because they they were instantly compliant, they were put into this fervor of fear, uh, but not many have forgiven um, themselves for it. They seem to want to dig deeper and say, "Oh, nothing to see there now. Don't want to look back." How you? How do you think we can carry on from this and get our get our power base back? We had a lot of uh, good friends and and families divided over this, and relationships were broken. Um, families were completely torn apart. Um, just just speaking from my experience in, in my local community here, um, because everyone decided to conform, uh, not everybody, sorry, there was a large percentage of people conformed, um, I was very heavily involved with my community. 
I was on just about every committee and board known to man in my local community and the local sports clubs and community centres and, and so on in schools. Now, that completely isolated me from the rest and I got kicked out of my local squash club, I got kicked out of my local golf club, I got kicked out of everywhere, wasn't allowed in anywhere, right? And um, since then, I've now left every single one of those organisations and sports clubs and I get asked often, oh, oh when are you coming back? Well, I'm not. I'm not coming back. Why? Why would I? If something like this happens again, I'm going to be kicked to touch again because I'm not going to conform to what the government tells me to do. And um, and they're like, oh, oh, really? I said, yeah. And I was doing a heap, an absolute heap, and they didn't realise how much I was doing until I was gone. But they were quite happy to kick me out of the buildings and I had to sit outside. They said, oh, I can come play golf, but I've got to sit outside. Really? Are you kidding me? Um, so, yeah, they, they lost out big time um, on the community on that front. But going forward, how do we get, get past this? Um, most people in this country are sheep if they get the can do, a certain carrot dangled in front of them, right? And um, the government keeps dangling those carrots. And those carrots just keep getting further and further away from these people and they just keep following like a herd of sheep. Um, I've seen some great analogies over the last three years with uh, – um, I think it was Jacinda uh, portrayed as a horse leading a whole heap of sheep away, and that was uh, Jacinda leading New Zealand. You know, and I mean, I don't want to. I'm not a very nasty person when it comes to that sort of stuff, but that analogy really hit home with me. That's exactly what was happening in this country, right? Little Bo Peep, or uh, part of the Pied Piper leading the rats out of town. You know, and it's just, yeah. Um, but what's happened um, in in recent times with the re- resignation of Jacinda? Um, I think she knew accountability was coming in a large scale and she decided to scarf a ship and, um, and left New Zealand high and dry. Well, and that's the problem, isn't it? Accountability. Uh, the, aside from the human damage, uh, it for me, it's all about money in many ways. Uh, the, the fiscal re- irresponsibility in this country. We've spent 35 years recovering from 1985 only to have it squandered in a certain amount of days, really, or months, and there's no one worried about it. There's, yeah, they talk about uh, inflation and they talk about the budget and they talk about this and that and how we're going to build all these new roads. They've just squandered 35 years of getting back on track and they did it so quickly and they don't appear to have any, what's the word? Uh, there's a word beginning with C, I can't think of it, uh, contrition. They don't seem to feel contrite about it at all. Uh, and they're just going to move on. She moved out. There'll be others move out. The sinking ship will see them gone, but they'll all get us in a cure somewhere else on the planet and uh, they'll all be happy. And they've left you and us um, with the debt. How's that? How's that responsible? It isn't responsible. It's not principled. So I'm I'm heartened to hear that you've um, you've got a positive attitude for the future. I'm of the opinion that people like you are going to hold the, the province together uh, you know, I'm feeling quite good as an older guy that there's young people coming through and doing this stuff. Um, but, you know, the anxiety, the abuse, we'll go back to that stuff, the regulatory machine coming at us inside the farm gate for farm plans uh, and all sorts of consents. What's the upshot? I mean, where's the win on any of this for for anybody except the payment of money into the regulator? What does it achieve? What does it achieve? It achieves more money in the government's coffers, and that's that's what the main aim is here, right? 
um, and they see uh, the agricultural sector as a complete cash cow. And if they've got con- full control of the cash cow, they've got full control of, of New Zealand. You know, you control the, the two main entities in the country being food and water. You've got full control. You control people because we can't survive as a human race without food and water. Um, where the, the regulation, where, where it's all going um, is, is just mind-boggling. Um, the amount of regulation that's coming at us now is, is ridiculous. I know um, Federated Farmers themselves have submitted over 370 um, submissions on various um, policies coming through the regulatory ship um, in the last three years. You know, 370, that, that's just insane. Um, <laughs> that, that's the sort of regulation that's coming at us. And you know, I get asked often, what do I enjoy about farming these days? Well, the one part I enjoy about farming is working with the animals in the land, but that's about 20% of my time now. 80% of my time is taken up with regulation, compliance, health and safety, staff management. The list goes on, right? And it's just absolutely a full freight train coming at us, Um, and it is scaring people out of this industry. I talk to farmers on a weekly basis who are ready to put their farms on the market, who don't want their kids to come into this into this um, sector, um, who are encouraging them to go elsewhere, either overseas into a, or into a different trade, um, because they do not see a future in this. And that's playing right into government hands. So my answer to them is, please hang tight, please hang in there. We are a traditional New Zealand family-owned farming country, and that's where we need to remain. We need to fight off this, this regulatory train we need to fight off the um, corporatisation continuing um, because, you know, if we don't, the country is going to be just a full control um, cesspool of corruption. It is indeed. I heard the word somebody said to me, it is a case of asking farmers to comply till they die. And and I, I, I couldn't agree more. More recently, I've heard somewhere in Southland and ANZ here, ANSCO had a farmers meeting that was... Uh, one of the speakers there was Vengelis Vitalis. He's a Deputy Secretary, Trade and Economic. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs website lists him as uh, currently a member of the World Economic Forum Trade and Investment Action Group and a member on the steering committee of the World Economic Forum Climate Trade Zero Initiative. And wonder of wonders, the gentleman was out somewhere near Gore talking about the fact uh, to these farmers that uh, the red beet industry, sunset industry now, you guys need to ship up or ship out. It is hard to believe the level to which these these bureaucrats have infiltrated. And you are, you know, you are astute where politics is concerned. We don't seem to have an opposition basin, do we? Because most farmers seem to think, go from red to blue and it's all done and dusted. We are in the clear. I don't think blue is going to be any better than red because they sat in Wellington and told us the direction is going to stay the same. Where Vangelis is, is concerned, um, I've, spoke, I've listened to him speak three times now live, and um, he is a puppet, a guinea pig, uh, promoting um, a bigger sense um, out there and trying to get people to conform to their way of thinking. Um, I don't agree with his approach and his philosophy. Um, and he's been put on, on on stages in front of room full rooms full of farmers, especially at the uh, PINS conference that Feds holds every year. Mm-hmm. And um, we get told that you know we must do this or we're going to m- lose out on this. That this this 
crap that they come at us all the time trying to hold us to ransom um, is just rubbish. You know, the, the good thing about, I mean, there's two good things. Uh, one good thing about technology these days, and there's, there's a lot of bad things about technology these days, um, is we can now keep in touch with our our fellow farmers overseas and our and our consumers overseas, right? So we can see at the fingertip exactly what our consumers want overseas, and they want the best quality product at the cheapest price. But mm-hmm. people like Vangelis comes in here, and they and they're telling us the total opposite. If we don't conform to this, we're going to lose this, this, and this. It's a lot of crap, um, you know, from what's actually coming back from around the world. And where I say that the the technology can be bad as well, you know, they talk about climate change and and uh, global warming and so forth and these extreme weather events. It's because of the technology now we're more aware of those extreme weather events because back in the 1950s or mid-1900s, the only way you found out about a weather event on the other side of the world is when it arrived on a newspaper on a ship that sailed six months beforehand, you know, Mm -hmm. and whereas technology now you can get it in split seconds. You know, I'm a common sense approach type person. And I just look at things black and white, and to me, that's just common sense. Like, seriously, the writing's on the wall there. You obviously have to be completely naive to the world or what's going on or stupid. Mm. Well, and of course, the the, of course, the IPCC has just come out and said there is no signal um, for any of those major events like floods and, uh, and, and winds and hurricanes and the like, but there is a small signal on heat. Uh, even that's uh, slightly overstating it, I would say, but... Yeah, you're right, Jason. Everything's in real time now. Uh, there is no one who can escape. But just going uh, for a moment in defense of Vangelis, um, who I've known for 20 years as well, um, he's just peddling the narrative. He's been trained to peddle. Yep, it's no different, to, no different to the sheep story that we've mm-hmm. just talked about. So uh, it's it's not pleasant having to. Uh, he's clearly a very professional person, very, very well researched and, and organized in his thoughts. But we don't agree with them anymore. The globalist agenda is not something that you or I or anyone likes. And that's the nub of it. Whereas he has been trained to be part of the globalist agenda, as have mm. all New Zealand trade ministers. They think that's the way to go. Otherwise, otherwise, there'd be some parliamentarian in Wellington saying, we're going to stand up against this globalization. Not one of them are. No, they're all. Yeah, and, 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 and sorry, my last point is ask them to dollarize the game. And they can't. For all no. their box ticking, there is not one dot. Fonterra would say they could, but I've never seen it yet. And I speak to many farmers who say, oh, they talk about 10 cents a milk solid, a kilogram of milk solids for ticking all these boxes. So that's all guessing. It's all guessing. Anyway, that's my rant. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's great that you can uh, see the woods for the trees. That's the key thing for me, uh, listening to someone like you and Bernadette and, and these others, uh, because it do, we do need people to, to stand up and at least have the discussion and at least put the wood on people. But it seems that we just have lost how to do that in, in, in recent years. So um, I'm happy that you're doing it. Um, going back to... Daring. I know we're we're probably getting toward the end of this interview, but uh, going back to daring for a moment, staffing does seem to be a big issue that farmers talk about now. Uh, are you finding that? Uh, and why, as I understand it, the best employers certainly reward their uh, employees very well. They uh, often have a house on the farms and they supply them with a whole lot of other stuff and there's fringe benefits. But we're told that uh, yeah, there's, it's still hard to pull people into dairying. 
Do you think that all links to the public perception that's being uh, peddled by media? Just put the industry down. 100% I do. Um, you know, it puts the pressure on the industry, right? And uh, it allows the industry to conform. Now, um, dairying has been overtaken by and overrun by corporates. Um, and corporates, in, in my mind, don't care um, about the land or the people. They don't. They put profits over everything. Um, profits first, right? And that's just my, in my experience on, on dealing with corporates. Um, because, you know, I've asked the question of, and when I've worked for corporates over the years, what, what are your goals? What are your goals for the farm? First thing on the list is always profit, right? And, uh, and then nothing else after that, pretty much. Um, staffing in the, in, in the dairy sector is, is a real tough one right now. Um, we had a huge problem in the, in the early 2000s to the late 2010 where we had our education sector pushing a lot of our um, delinquent youth into the dairy sector because they didn't want to deal with them at a schooling level, right? Encouraging them, you can go and get a dairy farm job for 40 grand a year. And, and to be a farmer in this day and age, you need to be intelligent. You've got to be able to be good with numbers. You've got to be good with science and you've got to be good with working with other people. Um, and if you don't have those skills, you, you can't go to the top in dairy farming. And uh, we rely very heavily on imported, uh, on um, immigrant um, labour now. And I myself um, have got a full team of immigrant labour. Um, and that has challenges in itself. Um, but with employing immigrant labour, you're on, you're conforming to government because you must do certain things to be able to employ these people. And, it, and it's pushing um, costs up in the labour sector in our, in our workforce sector. Now, we've still got people like Damien O'Connor, David Parker, saying that we can do better in the dairy industry. We just need to pay our staff more uh. and stop taking advantage of overseas people. Um, I'd like to put it out there, and I've been putting it out there for a wee while, for a very long time, as long time, as far back as I can remember, when we we bring immigrants into this country, we've always paid them more than we we entitled to pay Kiwis. And so how is that taking advantage of them? You know, if, if you know, we wanted to save uh, money to a point where, um, you know, we could run at a pretty thin line, we wouldn't employ immigrants, we'd employ these delinquent uh, youths out there just to put cups on cows, but they come with their problems. And um, when we're running a multi-million dollar business inside the farm gate, we can't have those problems on farm because it costs us thousands of dollars. And I've had those experiences over the years. And that's why I went to immigrant labour and paid that little bit extra is because I get that reliability factor. They come here, they want to work, they want to earn, they want to bring their families here and so on, and you get respect. Uh, where we don't get that off our Kiwis. And that all comes down to perception and the way that dairy farming has been perceived in the media. It's been very well orchestrated from the guys up the top um, and has beaten us down to the point where we're, where most of the sector is now conforming. And, yep. and I put that all down to corporatisation. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I agree with you in some respects, uh, Jason. Uh, there's people who still think that, uh, who don't realise that a migrant has to be paid minimum $29.10 an hour plus everything else on top and there is still uh, the government pushing you to get become an accredited employer anti-slavery legislation and so on some days i look at the paperwork and all one can do is snort and laugh at it otherwise honestly you'll go mad dealing with what there is but uh, then what do you do with ministers like that the other day a mate of mine uh, flew from christchurch to queenstown and it seems that uh, damien o'connor was sitting next to this uh, 
mate. And they obviously piped up uh, asking, what are you, where are you going, minister? And he says, you know, there's this farmer in central Otago somewhere who has got an all-electric tractor. And that's what I'm going to, a soundbite there. Uh, I don't know. If I'd been on the plane, I'd have, have looked for a parachute to just jump out or something. This is this is the caliber of, this is what our ministers seem to think. And this is as recent as this week, what they think they should be doing. This is, I've stopped calling it virtue signaling. This is ESG signaling now gone completely bonkers. And we have completely given up on uh, any semblance of backing our own. If they think that, you know, all of those technologies is something you and I can use. No, it, it makes no sense. And yet they continue. But as as I think we, we've taken enough of a time to do, Jason, I, I know it is carving. And we've had a couple of really rough days out here. How I how are your how are things on your farm right now? Everything's all going, set? going all right. Yeah, you know, we're all set, ready for, for carving. We're just getting into it now. And um, the boys are well prepped. Uh, some of them just got back from um, from spending uh, six weeks in the Philippines. Um, seeing okay. their family and wife, so you know everything's ticking on, and uh, I'm quite looking forward to the season ahead. To be honest, um, and uh, and seeing what more um, advocacy stuff I can put out there, because you know um, I've got a good team and uh, they support me well on farm, so I can get out there in the advocacy space and do my thing. Excellent. That's that's so good to hear. And I think uh, Don, you you would probably agree. There's something in the water. We seem to have groundswell. We seem to have people like Jason, you even Bernadette, and others. All seem to spring from uh, this end of the country. So all part to you, Jason. Thank you so much for uh, calling a spade a spade today. Don and I really appreciate your time on Greenwash. And hopefully, once you're on the other side of carving, we'll have you back. Sounds great. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio.